Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45. Please rise for the reading of God's word. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through airy places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes, up, takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in, go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be. It will be with this wicked generation. The word of the Lord. That's what you call nice, light summer reading. We're in the midst of a series entitled uh, Identity Theft. And uh, just one correction to the bulletin, part three will not be next week. Ryan is going to be speaking, so this is the last part in this series. Today we're in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Let's pray. Father... Thank you that uh, the reality that we have in your name and through your presence is something we can count on every day. And it makes a difference in more ways than we can possibly imagine. And we know that uh, the spiritual realm is very real. And there's a lot of malevolence in that realm. And anyone who is a follower of Christ is, uh, can be subject to that. But Lord, we pray that uh, we would sense how much we are protected by you and how we can trust you through all the trials and tribulations of life because you are our Heavenly Father and you love us. So we thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We began this series by talking about how hackers have turned identity theft into the one, one of the most frustrating problems of the computer age, and we're all at risk. But there's an even greater threat exposed in John chapter 10, verse 10, where it says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Now, this thief is not stealing information or impersonating us, he's much more ambitious. What he wants to do is steal our very identity to make us forget who we are and ultimately destroy our hope. And it's a very simple procedure because a long time ago in a garden far, far away, all he had to do was question God's word and replace the truth with a fascinating, flattering lie and paradise was lost. And it works even better if he can get us to lie to ourselves. And sometimes we do that, and we suffer the consequences. Last week we saw how a young man figured out that he didn't need his father's values, that he could do better by living life on his own terms. And so he changed his identity with ultimately disastrous consequences. And yet there was still hope. He finally came to his senses and he reconciled with his father. 
But that complicated things for his older brother and provoked an identity crisis for him. The oldest son got angry and filled with self-pity, accused his father of favoritism, which was a lie, and he also needed to come to his senses. Well, this morning we want to look at another biblical example of identity theft, and this one is probably as extreme as it gets. It's recorded here in Luke chapter 8, where verse 26 says, They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. So we're not in Kansas anymore, and we're not in Israel either. This was much like the far country. It could have been where the younger brother had squandered his inheritance. We're in the region of the Gerizines. And this was not some primitive culture filled with superstition, overrun with ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. The Gerizine society was sophisticated, progressive, well-educated. They embodied many of the uh, ideals of Greek culture at its best, and they were very prosperous. But in this region, there was a man who had superpowers, and they were not in the service of good. He was a supervillain. His outbursts of anger and irrational rage were a threat to all the peace-loving inhabitants of the region. And so they finally managed to uh, chain him up, hand and foot. Well, that made him so furious that he broke the chains and escaped. No one could control him. He reminds us of the Incredible Hulk, minus maybe the green skin pigment. And Jesus was coming to meet him, this supervillain with supernatural powers. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the, from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs. So here was another victim of identity theft. In fact, the thief had entirely eradicated his humanity. No clothes, no house, and it was replaced with demon possession. And he lived among the tombs appropriately. His natural habitat was death and despair. Verse 28 says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Jesus always had a way of uh, bringing out the best in a person, as well as the worst. It's interesting that people didn't recognize who Jesus was. The religious leaders could not make a positive ID. It was a perpetual case of mistaken identity. Even the disciples were unaware. Just before this landing, they had crossed the lake. And there was a violent storm, and they were panicking until Jesus rebuked the wind, and it became calm. And when they saw that, they were terrified and asked, Who can this be? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Well, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. This was the one that they would face on Judgment Day. This was the one who had the authority to condemn them and sentence them to eternal torture in hell. This was the only one that they feared. 
Some of you have watched the TV program Touched by an Angel. Well, I was once touched by a demon. True story. The power of demons is a fearful thing. But I had an experience that put that into perspective. When I was at seminary, there was a demon-possessed man in town that went on a rampage. He was terrorizing our community. There was vandalism, break-ins. He would smash windows with his fist. And he was often bleeding from self-inflicted injuries. He broke into local churches and even into our seminary. Reliable witnesses, I didn't see this, but reliable, reliable witnesses report that one day four policemen were holding him down, one on each arm, one on each leg, and he just shrugged, and they went flying. So there's a power here. One night we were having a prayer meeting at First Baptist Church when he came in and started destroying things. Well, we finally got him out of the building, and he ran off. So we went looking for him because people would be in danger with him at loose. And so that's when I saw him down the st a dark street. He had his belt and out and he was whipping my friend who was laying on the ground. And I was hoping that someone else would go to help. But the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side, as usual. Actually, I ran as fast as I could before my fear could stop me. I wasn't even thinking properly. And I grabbed the belt and ripped it out of his hand, and I stood between him and my friend, and wondering, what was I thinking? This could be the biggest mistake I've ever made. Well, when he saw me, he immediately became absolutely furious. And he told me why he was mad at me. Now, this was something that happened a long time ago in a place far away, something he would not have known anything about without supernatural help. That's when I realized what I, I was dealing with. He was in an absolute rage, and he made a fist, and he pulled back to punch me. And this is going to be Mike Tyson times 10. And I'm sure his intention was to break every tooth in my mouth. That's why I have to wear dentures to this day. But I was so shocked, I didn't even bother to duck. I was so shocked by what he said, I just stood there. And I saw this fist coming, and just before impact, it opened, and it brushed my cheek like this, and he ran away. I was touched by a demon. That was all that he was allowed to do, was just lightly brush my cheek. The Bible says if you resist the devil, he will flee. You see, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And I'll never forget how Jesus overruled the plans of the enemy on that night for my sake. You know, we have no idea how many times Christ has protected us from the malicious rage of the enemy. Now, I have to admit that we have been hit hard by Satan, especially in our family. And although it's hurt us, it has never harmed us because God is protecting us. And that incident reminded me of that in a very, very vivid way. So verse 28 says that... Uh, 
many times or <clears throat> that the demon cried out, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken the chains, and he had been driven by the demon into solitary places. You see, we were created for fellowship. We were meant to have families and friends and to experience community. Because much of our identity is established by our relationships, Facebook notwithstanding. But Satan tries to sabotage that, to drive us into solitary places, to isolate us from those who care about us. Depression does that. It, we withdraw from human contact. Grief can also do that. We quarantine ourselves and try to face sorrow alone. That's not healthy. Even though we don't feel like it, we need to force ourselves to go to church, to go out for coffee, to phone or Skype, to text, to tweet, anyone except Trump. For as someone said, we must tweet unto others as we would have others tweet unto us. But we need human contact, right? For he'd been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he said, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. That's incredible. Back in the Middle Ages, they were debating about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. And here the question is, how many demons can fit into one human soul? Well, the answer we're looking for is approximately 6,000. Although Roman legions varied in size, by the time of Christ, they were usually about five to 6,000 strong. That's what you call population density. 6,000 demons in one person's life. And if the Roman army conquered the world with their legions, imagine what these demons could do. This supervillain had an entire supernatural army inside of him. He was more formidable than Magneto or Dr. Doom or Shredder or Thanos or Ultron. And forget Superman. This calls for something far more than the Avengers or the Guardians of the Galaxy or the Ghostbusters. This man's soul was the most congested spot on the planet, a stinking demon-infested slum. So how did this happen? Well, the passage that was read earlier in Matthew 12 talks about the demon that returned to the place it had left and it brought seven other spirits more wicked than itself to live there. That's how that happens. It just continues until we have a legion. So here we have a situation that is absolutely impossible to deal with. It was hopeless. Well, no, it wasn't. Because Jesus was here. And it was finally time to serve an eviction notice. Verse 31, And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. It's very appropriate to the Jews. Pigs were unclean animals. 
So this was a suitable forwarding address for unclean spirits. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 5, verse 13 says there was about 2,000 pigs. So they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And it was a bad day for the kingdom of darkness. Total losses, 6,000 demons and 2,000 pigs. But for the Gerizines, their biggest problem was solved. Now the fine people of this community could go about pursuing their sophisticated, progressive lifestyle without any threat from the supernatural realm. Wait till people find out about this. They'll be celebrating throughout the land. They'll kill the fatted calf. They'll have a feast. Wait till they find out what happened. Verse 34, when those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. This was a dramatic miracle, a power or a demonstration of a far greater power than the demons. And it reminds us of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus came. That's what he's still doing today. He's destroying the devil's work. And this was just a sample of what Jesus could do. There was a lot more where this came from. Just think of the possibilities. Jesus, he could heal our sick. He could even raise our dead. He could forgive our sins. Remember when the Samaritan woman experienced God's grace? She invited her whole community to come and meet Jesus. And when they did, they asked him to stay as long as possible. Well, if Jesus can do this, if he can destroy the devil's work, Imagine the possibilities. The Gerizines would probably have a ticker tape parade and give them the keys to the city. And when the people came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. What? Does that make sense? They had every reason to be afraid before. But not now. He's delivered. He's free. His identity has been restored in mint condition. What could they possibly be afraid of? They were even more afraid of Jesus than they had been of a legion of demons. What is it about human nature? Verse 36, those who had seen it told the people of how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and he left. They asked Jesus to leave. Well, this is another evidence of identity theft. You see, we were created in God's image. He crowned us with glory and honor. We were made to rule over creation according to Psalm 8. That's who we are. And above all, we were made to have fellowship with our Heavenly Father. What a privilege. 
We are so unworthy of that. But maybe, maybe we can do better. Maybe we can live life on our own terms. Maybe we can make a name for ourselves. Instead of I did it thy way, our legacy will be I did it my way. So God, we're grateful for your offer, but we won't be requiring your services anymore. And we would appreciate it if you would stay on your side of the universe and we'll stay on our side. We can pursue our identity apart from God. John chapter 3, verse 19 reminds us this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We prefer the illusion of self-sufficiency, of independence, of being in control. And that's the problem with Jesus. You can't control him. Yeah, the demoniac was a threat, but at least we managed to put him in chains Next time, we'll just need to get stronger chains. But Jesus, we, we would never be able to restrain him. He's capable of anything. We don't mind a little bit of divine intervention every now and then, as long as it doesn't interfere with our lifestyle or disrupt our economy. We lost 2,000 pigs because of Jesus. That's a lot of bacon. Wendy's going to have to double the price on their Baconator. One commentator says God's power frightens people because some of his, his miracles are just too expensive. The demoniac did not cause as much damage as Jesus did. And that's true. That demon-possessed man never messed with their pigs. It's interesting that both passages in this series have pigs in them. I'm not sure what that means. But it says they asked Jesus to leave them. That's all they wanted. Okay, we've seen it, now get out of here. Leave us. They would rather have a man possessed by 6,000 demons in their region than Jesus, the Son of God. There was just too much collateral damage. Who's going to pay for this? God, if you're going to do something here, we're going to need a damage deposit first. So they asked Jesus to leave them. How utterly ridiculous and ungrateful. It's the biggest mistake you could possibly make. We would never do something like that. Or would we? Would Canadians be any different? Just imagine for a moment how a revival would affect our economy how it would affect our liquor stores and our casinos and our nightclubs. With a dramatic decrease in divorces and lawsuits, many lawyers would become unemployed. How many doctors have made a career out of doing abortions? How many psychiatrists would need to be retrained because righteousness would replace neurosis and psychosis? And those poor pharmaceuticals that sell billions in antidepressants, why our stock market could collapse. And the entire curriculum of the university would have to be rewritten. And God forbid that our shopping centers would be closed on Sundays. Is that what we want? It would be disastrous to our economy. 
You know, when revival hit Wales in the early 1900s, it sent their coal mining business into a crisis. Because when the miners were saved, they stopped cursing, no more profanity. And the mules that pulled the coal cars couldn't understand them anymore. They wouldn't move. They had to be retrained before work could resume. In a sin-based economy, Jesus is bad for business. When those pigs ran into the lake, their profits went downhill and their stock was liquidated. We can't afford that. So they asked Jesus to leave. Would Canada be any different? Well, we already know the answer because we have already asked Jesus to leave in many of the important sectors of our country, in government, in business, in academia, in the media. Jesus is never mentioned. It's as if he's not here anymore. And any official is strongly discouraged to mention Jesus. You do so at your own peril. Jesus is treated like an enemy of the state. And the Bible is dismissed as un-Canadian. Because we want to pursue our identity as sophisticated, well-educated, progressive people apart from God. We don't need him. And sure, we have some serious problems. Terrorisms and mass shootings and addictions and family violence and suicide. But we're just going to get stronger chains. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizims asked Jesus to leave them. And the same thing happened in Israel. Crucify him, crucify him. But in the Gerizims, it was not a total evacuation. Something was left behind. Someone was left behind. A witness to the power of God. Verse 38, the man whom the demons had gone out, from whom the demons had gone out, begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. It says that they found him dressed and in his right mind. His identity had been restored. He knew who he was, and he also knew who Jesus was. And when you find out who Jesus is, that's when you discover who you are. That's when you discover your true identity, and he couldn't wait to tell people about it. Wow, what a story he had. And you know, that's our role. Like the Gerizines, our culture has told Jesus to leave us alone. But we're left behind to tell the story, to tell others about who Jesus is, about his power, the power of his name, and how much Jesus has done for us, and how much he can do for others. And you know, I as I've been watching the way our culture is going, I suspect 
that we are going to have more and more opportunities to do that in the years to come. Because when Jesus becomes the outlaw, the un-Canadian, people are going to start getting curious. What's going on here? Why is he such a threat? I think Jesus is going to become relevant again. And being the church, the counterculture, well, it might even be cool to be a Christian once again as well. Because the greatest opportunities to witness for Christ is in the face of the greatest opposition. Let us be encouraged and let us look for opportunities to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his power because we have already experienced that power and we want others to experience it too. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. True story. It actually happened. And it's going to happen again and again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have experienced your power, each of us in our own unique way. I know how I've experienced that power in, in my life. And thank you for your protection. There have been times when uh, great harm could have been done, but it didn't happen. Maybe I was hurt, but I was not harmed. I thank you for that. Thank you that you are a Heavenly Father who uh, watches over us. And we look for opportunities, Lord, in this culture, which denies you, which wants you to leave. Leave them alone. We look for opportunities to testify to your greatness, to your great name. We pray this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand for a closing song.